Greetings in Christ's name. Thank you, Craig, for that opening. Guess we're all hermits, aren't we? Yep. We've all been visited by the King, and we praise God for that. And really, that's why we're here this morning, to commemorate and celebrate that. Uh, sometimes we call this the Feast of Love, communion. Just a time of sharing with each other and interacting with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ, His Son. And I think we, we commemorate and we celebrate. We commemorate the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sins of mankind and we celebrate the Lion of the tribe of Judah who was winning a great victory over Satan even as he was being sacrificed. I'd like to talk a little bit about Jesus, the Messiah, as a Lamb. We often hear the expression, the Lamb of God. We have a, a church not too far from here that's named after that. In fact, multiple churches, I think, are called Lamb of God. And that's a, that's a beautiful name. It's, a, it's an, in celebration of the Savior who came to give himself for us. When we look in Isaiah 53, this is an interesting chapter. Uh, it's a chapter that depicts Jesus as a sacrifice depicts him as the helpless Lamb of God. Uh, had a Jewish friend for years, worked, worked with an Orthodox Jewish man. And uh, he was, one of the things that he told me was that he doesn't believe that Jesus was the Savior because he said, face it, Jesus wasn't a king. So then I asked him about Isaiah 53. I said, what do you think about that chapter? He said, I don't have a good explanation for it. And he just kind of brushed it aside and moved on. But when we look at Isaiah 53, we're just going to look at verses 6 and 7 right now. But it says, All we like sheep are gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And we see that when Jesus was standing before Pilate, that he was silent. Now, Jesus wasn't always silent. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have people that say, well, Jesus didn't respond to his accusers, therefore we should never respond to ours. I don't believe that's necessarily accurate. Jesus, in other places, in other settings, responded very strongly to his accusers when he was teaching truth. But in this case, he was standing before Pilate, waiting to be sacrificed as the lamb. In John chapter 1, we, in verses 28 to 36, we see Jesus being introduced to the world by John the Baptist. And notice what John says. It says, These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John sees Jesus coming into him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and, abode upon, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Unto whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood, the two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. So we see John sent to introduce to the world 
Jesus, the Lamb of God. And when we think of a lamb, we think of someone, first of all, something that's meek. A lamb is, he opened not his mouth, as a sheep before her shears is dumb. And right along with that, Jesus was a symbol of harmlessness. You know, no one considered the welfare of the lamb when it was slain as a sacrifice for sin. And the lamb was no threat to anyone around, even to the priest which shed its blood. I was reading in, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it's reading about Solomon and the offering that he made. It says in verse 63, And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord two and twenty thousand oxen and a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king made, and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Uh, just to put that in context, if he killed 120,000 sheep, if they killed one a minute, it would have taken over 33 hours to kill them all. Can you imagine the tremendous slaughter? So there was no regard for the welfare of the lamb. The lamb was meek and helpless and silent and slaughtered. And Jesus fulfilled that mission. That's what he was like when he came to the world. And because of that sacrifice, we're here today, cleansed by his blood. In Leviticus, when it talked about sacrificing a lamb and bringing a lamb, it said in verse 32, and if he, in chapter 4, and if he bring a lamb for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without blemish. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it upon the horns of the altar of burnt offering and shall pour out all the blood thereof at the bottom of the altar. And he shall take away all the fat thereof, as the fat of the lamb is taken away from the sacrifice and the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar according to the offerings made by fire unto the Lord. And the priest shall make an atonement for his sin that he hath committed, and it shall be forgiven him. So here again, a picture of a lamb being offered as a sacrifice for sin. And that was Jesus. A lamb is dependent on others. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever read any of the James Harriet series, uh, the veterinarian in, uh, uh, in uh, Yorkshire, England. But uh, James worked in the Yorkshire Dales, and he had a lot of interesting stories to tell about his interaction with the farmers there. And, and, you know, and I remember a story that he told of sheep and how they were, there were hundreds of sheep and these sheep would have lambs. And in the spring, they would have to separate the sheep from the lambs to administer vaccinations to them. And he said that these, these ewes, these hundreds of ewes would be together in a great big group, and they'd push all the lambs aside, and they'd, they'd vaccinate the lambs. And he said when they released the lambs, he said they'd run back into that big flock of ewes, and every lamb would go directly to its mother. It immediately knew who mom was completely dependent on others. And Jesus, think about Jesus as the, as the Son of God, as God himself, he voluntarily became dependent on humans. Um, think of Jesus and how he grew up as part of a poor family. He lived out his life in poverty. Jesus was never wealthy. He said at one time that he didn't have a pillow where to lay his head. 
He had nothing. He faced rejection and scorn from his own people. He faced the loss of his early father at an early age. We don't know of his earthly father at an early age. I'm not sure how old Jesus was when Joseph died. We know that, Jesus, that Joseph was still living when Jesus was 12 years old. And then we have Jesus called to the ministry at about 30 years of age. And somewhere between those two times, his earthly father passed away. And as the eldest son in the family, it was considered his responsibility to take dad's place and provide for his mother. But he had to leave his mother and his family behind and go out in, into ministry. And, and we, if we, in the New Testament, we read about the initial rejection of Jesus by his brothers. And I may be wrong, but I believe probably part of that was they felt he had abandoned his post as the caretaker of the family. And there was bitterness toward him. Think of Jesus in the garden where he sought the companionship of his disciples. And it's really mind-bending, isn't it? Here he is, the creator of the universe. In the book of John, it tells us that without him, nothing was made that was made. But here he is, the creator of the universe, asking his disciples, could you please just watch with me one hour? And then when he's on the cross, when he asks John to care for his mother, and he says, woman, behold thy son, because, or I'm sorry, said, that's not, I didn't quote that correctly. He said, um, someone help me out when he was quoting. He looked at John and said, behold thy mother. Thank you, behold thy mother. And he was asking, I believe he was asking John on the cross, will you take care of my mom? Because I can't. So that dependence of Jesus on others is again another attribute of a lamb, the lamb of God. So this morning as we participate in communion, I think we need to think about that aspect of Christ's sacrifice. A helpless, defenseless, silent lamb who gives his life. And we should commemorate that. But we should also celebrate because Jesus was not only the lamb of God, but he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. In verse four of Isaiah 31, it says, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he shall not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Here we have the picture of a lion who is not afraid of the shepherds who are protecting their sheep even though there are many of them, because he's a lion, he's regal, he's not afraid, that's who he is. And he pictures God as such and pictures Christ as such coming down to fight for Mount Zion. And you know, as, as, we, as we think about the current situation that we're in and that the, the church of, of Christ is in, living in a world where there's little or no regard for the values that the word of God proclaimed that kept our nation what it was for so many years and we're all those things are cast aside and, and, and it feels sometimes like 
we're defeated. Like we can't stop the onslaught of evil. But God is going to return and he's going to fight for his people. He's promised that. He's going to fight for Mount Zion. And when he comes, he will come as a roaring lion. In Revelation 5, verse 5, Speaking of Jesus, and one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And if you remember the setting, it talks about the fact that no man was worthy of opening the book that would release the seals. And John wept as a result. And then this was the response of the elders to him, saying, Don't weep. There is someone who's worthy, and he is the lamb, or he is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So a lion is a symbol of royalty. We often, you know, in, in many uh, palaces, even, even from past archaeological finds, they find lions that are carved out of wood or stone or whatever it may be, showing royalty. That, that's a depiction of royalty. And when you look in the book of Matthew, you see Christ's lineage traced through his father, Joseph's line, through the royal lineage. So it, Matthew depicts Jesus as a king and as a lion, a strong, powerful image, the, the very opposite of the lamb, someone who's strong and, and will not fail and will not bend and will not yield and is not silent. You know, the lion is a ferocious creature that inspires fear. I've never seen a lion in the wild. I've seen them in zoos, but not in the wild. But from some of the video that I've seen of people who have encountered them, it's not an easy experience to encounter a lion. A lion is a symbol of dignified power and independence. Now, we have cats at home. I know some of the rest of you have too. We, uh, we used to have a friend who would say this. He would say, the dog says, you feed me, you house me, you take care of me, you must be God. But the cat says, you feed me, you house me, you take care of me, I must be God. And it seems to be the difference in their nature. And so in a small house cat, that's a bit annoying at their independence and, and stubbornness. But when you transpose that to a lion, it's a, it's a, it's a creature of dignity and, and, and strength. No wonder it's depicted as royalty. Some of you probably, some of you probably remember Duke, the, the big Barbary lion at, uh, at Black Pines Animal Park. Anybody here ever, ever saw Duke? Who ever saw Duke? He's been dead a number of years now, but we used to go there to see him. He was, uh, he was a big regal animal. He, had, he was a Barbary lion, so he had the big mane that would go all the way down, like halfway down his chest. Massive creature. And regal, and, and he had to be careful because he would spray you if he had a chance. Uh, there were times when he had, he had a big, they had a big uh, like a tire hanging down from a rope for him to play with. And I remember when our daughter Angie was fairly young, she was probably 10 years old or so, and we were there, and, and the group had kind of moved on, and she was just kind of lingering, watching this big lion. And all of a sudden, he just, and he, he grabs that tire, and he grabs it in his teeth, and he shakes it and claws it, and he's staring right at her as if he's saying, if you were in here, this is what I'd be doing to you. So, you know, 
something that was regal and strong used to used to roar. Uh, they said on average he'd roar twice a day, and it was a deep roar that they said they could hear three miles away. It's a massive creature. And Jesus is depicted as that lion, that great king who will fight on our behalf. Isn't that a dichotomy? Jesus as the helpless lamb, Jesus as the royal lion, and yet in Christ, the lamb and the lion are reconciled. With humanity, power and meekness tend to militate against each other. What happens to a man who's given too much power quite often? He doesn't become more meek, does he? He becomes abusive and he takes advantage of others. But in Christ, that is not the case. The most powerful being in the universe is also the most humble. He's meek and lowly. And that's amazing. You know, I was thinking about how in American government we have a lot of checks and balances. We have the three branches of government. We have, you know, the legislative, the judicial, and the executive. And we have those branches, and we have checks built in so they keep each other in check so that no one becomes too powerful because everyone's afraid of someone who becomes too strong. We have the saying in, in America that no man is above the law. Everybody is under the law because we don't want someone to become too powerful. Um, who was the man who said that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? And yet with God, that is not true. Power does not corrupt God. It did not corrupt Christ. And in fact, when you look at servant leadership, we hear, hear an awful lot about servant leadership in today's business world. The concept comes right out of the New Testament. I was uh, here some time ago. I was in some leadership training at work, and the instructor was giving us all of these, all of these things. He was telling he was someone who'd come out a new had hired them from from outside, and and he was telling us about concepts of servant leadership. And at the break, I told him, I said, you know, I said most of what you've taught today comes right out of the New Testament. And he kind of chuckled and he said, yeah, I know. He said, I'm not allowed to say that in my training classes, but he said that's exactly right. And so the concept of servant leadership, giving someone authority to carry out a work God has given him to do, and yet at the same time making him a servant, that comes from Jesus. That's who Jesus was, who Jesus is. He sits at the right hand of the throne of God, and yet he is, he, he behaves as a servant to humanity. And, and that's beautifully captured, I think, in our communion service. As we commemorate the blood of Christ through the wine or the grape juice and, and the broken body of Christ through the unleavened bread, and we wash one another's feet to depict servanthood, that comes from Jesus Christ. No conflict between the lamb and the lion. In Isaiah 11, starting at verse 1, I'd like to read through verse 9, where it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, 
neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed their young ones. Excuse me. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I believe he's talking here about the time beyond history as we know it to the new creation when there will no longer be a nature and and a system that destroys but instead we will live in a place where strength and and servanthood and meekness dwell together that comes from jesus the demands of justice meet the gift of mercy in christ isn't that amazing they come together Psalm 85, 9 and 10. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. The fact that we can live righteously. You know, we have, unfortunately, in today's world, I think in Christendom, we have too much of this idea that, well, we have to accept people as they are. And we just have to love them as they are. And we just have to show love to them and then God will somehow change them. Well, we do need to love them. But we need to love them as God does. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He's not going to be silent when we do that which is wrong. Because in Him, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. There's no conflict there. We don't have to sacrifice righteousness for the sake of peace or we don't have to sacrifice truth for the sake of mercy because in Jesus they come together in Christ absolute meekness and humility are in perfect harmony with the regal bearing of the king of kings what do you think it'll be like when Christ returns when he returns as king I've often wondered what's going to happen when Mousy Tongue meets Jesus Christ and they come face to face. All of a sudden, Mousy Tongue was the dictator of China and was probably the single most notorious murderer in human history. Mousy Tongue is believed to have been responsible for the death of upward of 50 million people, most of them his own countrymen. Some estimates are as high as 80 million very savage, evil person who vowed to wipe out the church in China. He failed miserably. The church is much stronger today than it was in the days of Mao Zedong. But what's going to happen when he meets Jesus Christ? Or what about Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Che Guevara or every other savage, murderous dictator? What's going to happen when they meet Jesus Christ? Do you ever see these people who wear the Che Chiefs t-shirts. They have Che Guevara on the front of their shirt. 
and he's supposed to be some kind of symbol of revolutionary change. The man's a mass murderer. Uh, we had some, uh, it was interesting, I read here some time ago, we had some Democrats in Florida who were wearing some chase shirts, and they met some of the refugees, Cuban refugees who live in South Florida. And the response was, they were incredulous, like, that man killed my grandfather. Why would you wear a picture of him on your shirt? He's a murderous dictator. So what happens when these people meet Christ? Well, I think in Philippians 2, it tells us in verse 8, speaking, first of all, as Jesus, as the meek lamb of God, and how God will exalt him. It says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you look in other translations, it often instead of saying should, it says shall, because the Greek tense is future. And so I think I know exactly what Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong and Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and every other murderous dictator will do. They'll bow at the feet of Jesus and they'll confess that he is Lord. They will have no other choice because he is the king. What about our response to the lowly king, Jesus? What are the responses that we as Christians should feel, not only at, when we're at communion, but all the time? Well, I think is, the first is a response of trust. We know that he has our best interests at heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus cares about you? Brother Todd Neuswander was here a few weeks ago. He talked about knowing all things, and he talked about uh, Romans 8, 28, you know, that all things work together for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all things work together for your good? It doesn't feel that way sometimes, does it? It feels like God's against us, but in reality, he's shaping us. He's molding us. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're not afraid of the one whose gentle hand touched the brow of the sick and made them well. How many times in the New Testament do we have examples of Jesus laying his hands on some poor, sick, or blind, or lame soul and changing them? But that's what he did for me. I was sick and blind and lame, and he laid his hands on me and made me whole. All of us here are that way. We are not afraid of that one. We have a response of trust. We feel the sympathy and the empathy of the suffering one who understands all of our, fra- our pain. We trust him because he is our friend and brother. And indeed, that leads to the second, the second point. There's a response of friendship. You think of Jesus as your friend? Well, he thought of us as his friends. We delight in the presence of the person who called us, not his servants, but his friends. In John 15, Verses 13 to 15. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, 
For all things that I've heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now, sometimes we hear about people who have friends in high places. Well, we have a friend in high places. That's Jesus Christ. He is our friend. How does that affect the way we feel toward him? In this morning, you are here to commemorate the death of your friend and yet to celebrate his triumph over evil. And it brings, I think, a mix of emotions, but they're all good. They make us feel good because he is our friend. We feel the comfort of his soothing hand of provision and friendship in the hour of our need and the joy of his smile in our hour of success. He's not a sunshine friend, but he's there for every event in our lives, both pleasant and unpleasant. Sometimes we're on a mountaintop, sometimes we're in the valley. But one thing we know is that God, through Christ, is there with us regardless of whether we're on the mountaintop or the valley. As Christians, unless Christ returns before the end of our lives, someday in terms of health, we'll be at the bottom of the valley. We'll be slipping away. And yet, when we're at that lowest point in our lives on earth, we will be entering kingdom of Christ and will be at the highest point spiritually. So we can actually look forward to being reunited or being united with Christ through our own death. We rejoice in the plans that he has revealed to us through his Holy Spirit, plans of good for us for all eternity. You believe that, that Jesus Christ has plans for you that are eternal. And again, as the great king of kings, you can take comfort in that. And you can celebrate that this morning in communion. I think it should bring a response of reverence. I think we should stand in awe of the one who made the universe. Ours is a close friendship, but it's not a casual friendship. Back when I was a teenager, there was a popular song, Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. And I'm not quite sure what the intent was of the author, but that song always struck me as, really? Is that right? You know, Jesus doesn't have a casual relationship with me. He's my friend, but he's also my Lord. And that's, it's not a relationship that is to be viewed casually. I should honor him even as I see him as my friend. And again, today, I think quite often in many of our Western churches, Jesus is probably depicted too much as a casual friend and not so much as, yes, our friend, but also our Lord and our Savior. We honor the presence of the Holy One as we worship. Why do we dress up to go to church? Well, partly probably to respect one another, but also in honor of the one we're here to worship. We revere the King of Heaven and bow our hearts before Him in prayer and in praise. I like to see that when Christians bow their heads, close their eyes, and pray and worship their friend, their Lord, and their Savior. But perhaps the most important response should be a response of obedience. We do what he asks us to do. We follow his bidding as we face life's decisions. 
His commands draw the boundaries of our conduct as Christians. John 14, 13 to 16, and whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall grant, give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. You know, it's interesting in the book of James, I think it is, where he tells us that you receive not because you ask not. And then sometimes you don't receive because you ask something that is against the will of God so that you can consume it in your own lusts. Well, he's telling us here that if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And that sounds like a pretty lofty promise. But I, but I do think what that means for us as Christians is that we should not be afraid to ask. Pray and ask specifically. The Bible talks a lot about supplications. And we look at the Greek word behind the word supplications. It means specific requests. And sometimes we have this, uh, you know, this generic prayer that we pray, Lord, bless everybody. Lord, help everybody. Lord, do everything. You know, we, and, but he wants us to ask. When we have needs, ask him to fill those needs. And I, I fail on that. I really do. Sometimes I'm you know, one of those do-it-yourself kind of people. And I just want to do it myself. I don't need God to help me. Or I've got to help God out a little bit. And he wants us to do what we can. But he also wants us to ask. Ask anything in my name and I will do it. And then he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I've asked you to do. We're different from the world, not just because of what we believe, but because of how that belief translates into what we do and what we are. Our identity is in him. We are obedient children of the heavenly father and blessed servants of the glorious king of kings. Are you here to celebrate? Praise his name. I was thinking, and in closing, I want to talk about this for just a moment. Thinking about what it will be like when we get to heaven. And we see Jesus as the King of Kings. And I believe, based on what we read in especially the book of Revelation, I believe we'll see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, just as he's described. I think we'll see the throne where the Father sits and Christ sitting beside him at his right hand. And we actually see him in person, and we relate to him. We're going to, we're going to be full of joy. We're going to be full of just rapturous joy as we understand for the first time what it's like to be in the physical presence of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I don't think we're ever going to forget the sacrifice that he made as the Lamb of God. It's interesting, remember how he showed Thomas his wrists and he said, touch my wounds, thrust your hand in my side and don't be unbelieving, but believe me. So I think those things will be preserved in heaven. Probably the only man-made things in heaven, right? The scars on Christ's body. So we're not going to forget them. I, I, I think all of you have probably heard this story at one time or another. I heard it recently again myself. I just want to recount it. Uh, it was kind of aimed at the children, but it's aimed at all of us. Uh, the story of the little girl whose mother's hands were scarred. 
And she was kind of ashamed of that. Couldn't understand why her hands were so badly scarred. <laughs> and would, as she grew a little older, she would kind of, kind of repulsed her. And she kind of complained about it sometimes. But she knew it hurt her mother, so she didn't say much about it. And one day she was at school, and some of her school friends had met her mother, and they were making fun of her mother's hands. And she came home all upset. And just, you know, and she was in her room. She was angry and upset. And finally her dad went in there to talk to her and said, well, what's wrong? And she said, why does my mom have to have such ugly hands? And then her dad said, well, let me tell you a story and explain why her hands are so ugly. He said, when you were newly born, just a matter of a few months old, you were upstairs in an upstairs bedroom and your mother ran across the street to borrow something from the neighbor. And when she turned around to walk back home, the house was on fire and you were in it. She said, you were in that upstairs window and she said she couldn't get up the stairway. So she, as the fire department was arriving, she uh, climbed up a trellis on the outside of the house. And the trellis was extremely hot from the fire. And every time she grabbed that trellis, it burned her hands severely. But she made it up through the window. She broke the window and got in and rescued you. And they said that the, the girl at that point <coughs> broke out crying, broke out weeping, and then ran out to her mother and grabbed her hands and said, Mom, you have the most beautiful hands in the world. And I really think that when we are in heaven and we look at the hands of Jesus, our hands won't be scarred. Our hands will be perfect. His will be the only scarred hands. But that will be a mark of honor. Makes me think of the song, The Only Scars in Heaven. And to me, that is really a, a way that helps me understand the blending together of the innocent, helpless, silent Lamb of God with the regal, powerful, avenging King who will bring judgment on the earth. Understanding that in heaven, He will be our Lord he will be our king, but we'll always remember what he did for us by looking at his scarred hands. There really is no dichotomy between the meek lamb of God and the powerful lion of the tribe of Judah. Our Savior brings it all together perfectly. So I hope this morning as we commemorate and celebrate, I hope that picture helps us maybe just a little bit more honoring the one who brought us here and who made this possible. Thank you. May God bless. Let's have prayer.